Thank you, worship team. Joe, appreciate it. We have so many that uh, I, I sound really loud. Can you back me down a little bit, Ted, please? We have a lot of people that uh, do things throughout the week and at various events that take place around here. And uh, Sometimes you might know who they are, sometimes you don't, and they prefer it that way. But uh, we are truly blessed to have so many here that minister and serve and help to uh, make things happen, such as the work that takes place to even be here Sunday morning to be able to have a worship team and song and uh, the heat turned on and all the things that take place. So I thank all those that do that behind the scenes. We're going to be continuing in Matthew, uh, the 20th chapter. If you go ahead and start turning there, and uh, we'll read together starting in the 17th verse, Matthew chapter 20. While you're turning there, uh, two things. I've got a uh, announcement for those who are parents, and a few of them, have, I think, are doing the children's church, so we'll have to catch them in a little bit. We have a bouncy house from yesterday that we kind of promised the kids we'd set back up today. I'm not sure we can do it outside, so we may end up having to put it up in the um, fellowship room right after church. So if you have children who would like to get a little bit of time on the bouncy house, uh, stick around a little bit, fellowship a little longer, and have some snacks, and then we'll set that up and let them uh, jump as about as long as they want to or until I'm ready to fold it up and put it away, one or the other. But uh, just want to make sure that the, those who have kids uh, let you know that that is available right after church sometime. So let's open in prayer and then we'll begin reading in uh, chapter 20. Our Father, we come to you again this morning um, acknowledging that you are the reason we're here. That you are our Father. You're the one who loves us. You're the one who saves us. You're the one who provides for us. You're the one who created us and all that exists. And Lord, we take a moment to just thank you for that. We worship you. We praise you. You are exalted. You are holy. You are merciful. And Lord, we know that you love us. We pray, Lord, as we come together this morning, that you will be with us as we study your word that you have given us. That you'll use my mouth today to speak what you want your people to hear. And I pray that you'll use your word to accomplish everything in my life and in my heart and in the lives of all that are here today hearing this and uh, even hearing us on the podcast. As I know that some do listen to that after, after the sermon. We just pray that they will accomplish everything that you desire to accomplish. And Lord, we pray that you'll be glorified by what takes place here today and by the words that are spoken. In Jesus' name, amen. So starting in uh, the 17th verse of chapter 20 of Matthew. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. 
Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say to these two sons of mine, or, or I'm sorry, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to, to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over you, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has just completed a period of time when he has been teaching and instructing his disciples. I think the last time that I preached on Matthew, which would have been in late spring, I believe I mentioned at the time that this was a point after that, that particular passage, and I think chapter 14, that Jesus withdrew, if you will, from the teaching of the masses. Remember, he had a lot of times where he would get on a hill and he would just preach to hundreds, if not thousands of people. He began his ministry of pulling aside the disciples and teaching them more privately. There were still people with them, but his focus was to his disciples and those that uh, uh, become the apostles, the 12 disciples that are following him. And there are probably other people, including uh, some women that might be uh, in this group, but is primarily towards the disciples that his ministry focuses. So he's completing this period of time where he's been teaching them and instructing them. And he's begun his journey to Jerusalem. And the most amazing thing is to his death. Luke 9.51 tells us that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew why he had come to the earth. He's here to fulfill the redemptive plan of his father. As Jesus even said at an early age in the temple, that um, I must be about my father's business. My family's laughing right now because this time of year we get flies in here for some reason. And it, it disgusts me Sunday morning when I have to come in and, and uh, clean up all this spiders or the uh, flies and there's one touching me now. <laughs> um, but at an early age, he, he says that I must be about my father's business. He knew the plan. Jesus is not randomly being pushed along in his life here on earth and things just happen to him. He is here for a purpose. He knew all the details of what was to take place. He knew the method. He knew the timing. He knew the location of all that takes place and ultimately his death 
on the cross. To me, that makes this passage even more amazing. He knew. And he set his face to go to Jerusalem. What an amazing story. Look at verse 17 again. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. So Jesus pulls his disciples aside privately to prepare them for what is to come. Where are they going and what is going to take place? He wants to prepare them. They were traveling towards Jerusalem just before the Passover. And the roads are probably quite crowded with other pilgrims who are also traveling to the city of David for the same purpose, to, to observe and, and participate in the Passover, which is a, a very important Jewish uh, festival and, and, uh, and uh, event that they take place in every year. And we read in verse 29 a little later, it's not part of today's uh, reading, but that there is a great multitude following him. So that lets us know that there are many people that are on the roads with him, and many of them, either purposely or not, are in the vicinity that he is at. There's a multitude of people. So he pulls his disciples aside because he wants to talk to them privately. Bob described last week that this description of going up to Jerusalem that is used here is used because Jerusalem is up on Mount Zion, which is about 5,000 feet above sea level. The only way to get to Jerusalem is to ascend the mountain. You go up the road, but you're going up into elevation. This is the third time and the final time that Jesus tells his disciples about his coming death and resurrection. In chapter 16, Jesus told the disciples that he was going up to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. In chapter 17, he says that the Son of Man was to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And now here in chapter 20, he once again is explaining what is to take place, but he's giving much more detail than he has in the past. Each time he kind of adds to the information that's provided. He will travel to Jerusalem. He'll be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. He'll be condemned to death. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles, which to a Jewish population and to a Jewish person, this adds a greater degree of shame to it, to be handed over to the Gentiles, to be mocked and beaten and crucified, which is a type of death that is reserved only for the, the lowest of Sinners and criminals. And it's only practiced by the Gentiles, by the Romans. Again, adding a, a more shame and gruesomeness to the death that is being described that Jesus is going to endure. But 
he will be raised on the third day. On each instance, Jesus adds a bit more detail to what he describes. Until this time, he provided a substantial amount of detail. Verses 17 through 19 are arguably the most important verses in the Bible. This is a most important Christian truth. Jesus' death and resurrection is central to biblical revelation. Without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, there is no Christian faith or religion. We would be no different than any other religion on the face of the earth. In this passage, we have Jesus himself describing what will take place, by whom, how, and why. This is the culmination of the redemptive plan of God that Jesus describes and will take place not long after this time. However, the disciples still do not completely understand what's to take place, even after being told at least three times in various detail. They still do not completely understand, and they won't understand fully until after Jesus' death and resurrection. In Luke's parallel description of this event that takes place in Luke 18, verse 34 reads, But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So even Luke, when he wrote about this event, wrote that the disciples aren't getting it. They don't understand this. In the ending chapter and verses of, of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus appeared to the disciples after his resurrection, and he explained, These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. But then listen what he says. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So they followed Jesus. They were personally taught by him for three years. But it wasn't until after the resurrection when Jesus came back to, to meet with them again. And he took the veil from before their eyes, if you will, that they were finally able to start understanding what he'd been talking about all that time. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I think that's something that takes place with us. That has to take place with us because we won't understand scriptures if the Holy Spirit doesn't remove that veil and allow us to be able to start understanding them. But at this particular event in chapter 20, the, the disciples still do not understand. They knew they were going to Jerusalem for the Passover. What they didn't understand is that in this case they were traveling with the Passover lamb. What they didn't understand, or I'm sorry, remember that the Jews, including his disciples, we forget sometimes that they were raised Jewish also, so they have the Jewish mentality, the Jewish teachings, all the various things, so... We need to remember that as we discuss them. They weren't Christian when they were walking with Jesus. They were followers of Christ. 
but they had a Jewish background. So remember that the Jews, including his disciples, believed that the Messiah was coming as a lion, the lion of Judah. So for them to understand and accept the words of Jesus as he describes it here, that he was on his way to Jerusalem in his death, they still haven't got it. They were still looking for the return of the Messiah to reestablish the kingdom of, of Judah and Jerusalem. So they weren't thinking in the same direction that Jesus is actually revealing to them at this point. In fact, a perfect example of their lack of understanding is given to us starting in verse 20 of, uh, the, of the passage we're reading today. Look at it and see what it is that they're doing. James and John, who are the sons of Zebedee, and their mother come up to Jesus with a request. Here Jesus is speaking about his pending betrayal, beating, crucifixion, the things that are going to take place to him when he reaches Jerusalem. And the sons of Zebedee come to him to try and get places of honor when Jesus establishes his kingdom. Maybe they were responding to Jesus' words at the end of chapter 19, where he tells them that the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, and you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Maybe they're trying to get a leg up on that. They know that, oh, there's going to be these twelve thrones. Maybe... One of them is reserved for us, and maybe we can get close to Jesus. So let's ask. Or it's very possible and likely that James and John are cousins to Jesus, so their mother might have imagined that they would receive some special favor. Because it's family. So I have the right to ask for these particular seats next to Jesus. So they come to Jesus, and their mother asks him to let her sons sit at his right and left hand in his kingdom. And when I was reading this, the things that come to mind, which I would hope comes to your mind, is how, how insensitive of the disciples, especially these three people. How ungrateful. Haven't they been listening? Didn't they get anything out of these last years of walking and being taught by Jesus? But be careful with our thoughts. Be careful that we don't point the finger too hard at them. For this is how we would probably respond too if we were in that same situation. They were looking for a king. But what they needed was a savior. Instead of correcting or scorning them, Jesus, in his gracious, patient, and loving way, doesn't rebuke them. But instead, he asks a question. Verse 22, Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink 
And just the way this is described, what I'm envisioning is, is Mary comes with her sons, probably prompted by the sons to do this, ask this question, and when Jesus responds, his response is to them, to them generally, the mother and the sons. But the second part of that verse, I think, is specifically directed towards James and John. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Jesus knew exactly what his death entailed. There was no secret to him. He knew what was coming. He knew what was going to happen. The disciples did not. They're still obviously just thinking they're going up to Jerusalem and they've missed all the other parts of this. But James and John profess that they are ready to drink the cup. But this is only a cup that Jesus can drink. This particular cup is for him alone. Their actions in the garden when Jesus was arrested show that they were not yet ready to drink of the cup of Christ. When all the disciples deserted Jesus, if you remember. The cup that Jesus is to drink is the cup of God's wrath. And only the perfect incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, can drink that cup. Jesus tells them that they will suffer for him, but that the request that they have is only for God, the Father, to decide. Jesus foretells, if you will, James and John's future of suffering for his sake. But this is not the time, and this is not their cup. We know in Acts 12:2 that James is eventually beheaded by Herod and John, and John, according to Revelation 19, is tortured and exiled to the island of Patmos for the sake of his Savior. So they do eventually uh, suffer and drink from that cup, which is what drinking from the cup means, the suffering that takes place because of their following of Jesus. Once the other disciples hear of this conversation that's been taking place, they are indignant. Probably a better description would be jealous displeasure. Because John and James got to Jesus first. Given the opportunity, they probably would have been asking for an exalted position themselves. But now they're mad because James and John got in there first and asked this. So they have this displeasure towards them and express it. And again, that's how we are. Imagine a similar situation and you're involved in it. You're probably also going to be thinking about yourself in that situation and and what can I get out of this and how do I... Um, how do I get a leg up on everybody else? It's just human nature. While we hope that we might have done the right thing, we probably wouldn't have. This desire for being first will continue with the disciples 
and continue to be an, an issue with them until Jesus' death. It's been an issue with them actually all three years of traveling with Jesus. There's been numerous times that they've brought about things by either asking questions or among themselves trying to get to uh, some status of, of being better than anybody else. To have Jesus lifting, lifting them up in some way. Jesus is aware, though, of this friction that's taken place, of this discussion among his disciples. So he calls them together and he instructs them. He reminds them that the greatness in the kingdom of God does not come through rulership or authority, but through service. Verse 26, take a look at that again. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus uses it as a teaching moment. And in the end, he uses himself and what his ministry is and what he's doing as that example for them. Gentile leaders dominate in a dictatorial fashion. That's the way they function. If, if you have read any history of the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire and those that took place at that time, uh, they were uh, the leaders there were ferocious at times and and. Uh, uh, you know, that if you didn't submit to them, then you could be jailed or punished in some way and maybe even put to death. But that's the way a Gentile leader rules and functions. They're using carnal power and authority upon their subjects. Believers are to do the opposite. And they are to lead by being servants and giving themselves away for others, which is a foreign concept to not only Gentiles in the days of Jesus, but I think to us today. You know, in the Western world, in the business world, in the way that we do things, we don't typically think in the line of giving ourselves for others and giving our uh, our our commitment of, of helping others to benefit over us is foreign to us until Jesus Christ changes you. That's when it becomes possible. Those most highly esteemed in the kingdom to come will be those who serve, those who are humble. Jesus himself will demonstrate this when he arrives in Jerusalem. He did not come into the world to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This last phrase is a very important uh, word and phrase for us to understand. For in it, Jesus reveals what his death will accomplish. It tells of the substitutionary nature of Christ's redemptive death. 
He's told his followers many times that he'll die. But he hasn't until this incident. He has never given a reason why. And here he does. Here's the reason. I'd like to read a paragraph from a a book. Um, I don't have this volume out here, but um, we try to put some of these things out on the bookshelf out here if you're interested in taking a look at it. But this is James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, Volume 2. Volume 1 is out there, unfortunately, but uh, this was from Volume 2. It deals with these verses, and I, I was... I was uh, Blessed by reading it, and I, I was hoping that you too might receive some understanding from here. And is dealing especially with the word of ransom here in this passage and, and the meaning of its usage. So I want to share that with you. So I hope you're still paying attention and, and hear this. We're getting real close to being done, but this is important. Boyce says, ransom belongs to a word group based on the root verb luo, which means to loose. These words have an interesting development. The root word originally meant nothing more than to loose or to loosen, as in taking off clothes or unbuckling one's armor. When used of persons, it signifies the loosening of bonds so that, for example, a prisoner might be released. It was usually necessary to pay a ransom to free a prisoner, however. So in time, a second word developed from Luo to signify this ransom price. It was Lutron, and I'm probably not doing the Greek justice here, but I apologize for that. Lutron is the word that is occurring here in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. This is the word that's being used there. From lutron, another verb developed, lutro, which like luo meant to loose and to set or to set free, but unlike luo also meant to free by paying the redemptive price or redemption price. For these last two words, the proper Greek term for redemption came about, lutos. In the New Testament, these words refer to the way Jesus freed us from sin slavery by his death. That's why that phrase is so important and that word is so important. It explains and tells us what it cost. What was the redemptive price that Jesus paid? This is an example, and I think I've mentioned this before, of why having a good commentary available to you or some other study aid when you're studying your Bible, it's helpful to have some of these things available to you because uh, sometimes you get the, the language background or some other background that's very helpful for understanding the text even better than what you might on your own. Jesus' death will take the place of many deaths. For only His death could truly atone for sin. He paid 
the redempting price. Romans 5.8 says, But God showed, shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was the perfect sacrifice whose substitutionary death paid the price for sin. The Theological Dictionary of New Testament by Kittnell says, The understanding of Jesus' death as a ransom for us is a basic element in the church's confession which it cannot surrender. This is one of those themes that the church has to be willing to die on the hill for. Because if it isn't for the death burial, and resurrection of Christ. And there is no religion. We're wasting our time here. But there was, and there is. And Jesus did die on the cross and satisfied the wrath of God for those that he saves. I hope today that if you are hearing this message, that you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you haven't, and you want to understand more, then I ask you, I invite you, I beg you, don't leave this building this morning without getting some answers. You can come forward at the end of the service, you can grab us after the service, but talk to somebody today if you don't know Jesus as your Savior. The drinking of the cup that Jesus speaks about in this passage is represented by the cup of juice that we share during communion. Jesus freely gave his life to satisfy the wrath of God for our sins. Without this sacrifice, salvation is not possible. Without Jesus' death, there is no redemption. I'd like to do something a little bit different this morning as the worship team comes up. I'm going to ask them just to play through this song. While the ushers pass out the communion elements. And I'd like us to take the opportunity to just reflect silently between you and God on the gift of God and His Son and prepare your hearts to share communion together. So ushers, if you'll come forward and do that, worship team, please.
Thank you. Jesus paid it all. All the MIO. The night that Jesus was betrayed, they were eating. Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, and this is my body. Let's eat together. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink together. And he tells them, I tell you that I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And that's his promise to us. And look forward to that taking place someday. Hope that you spend some time in fellowship after the service. There's refreshments that will be put out. And again, if you have kids and want to give them a little bit of time on the bouncy house, we'll get that set up for them very quickly. But thank you. Have a good Lord's Day. A good week. God bless you. Remember whose child you are. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your mercies and your love. Thank you for your salvation. We pray, Father, that you will be with us, that we might be the light to the world in this community, that we might be the salt that you want us to be. Lord, we know that we need you and your Holy Spirit and your word to be in us and working in us to make us into those men and women of God that you want us to be. And we pray that you will be diligent in that. We pray that you'll be shaping us continually that we might live in a way that would be considered worthy of the calling that we have in Jesus Christ. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus What can make me whole again Nothing but the blood of Jesus Oh, precious is the flow That makes me white as snow No other founts I know Nothing but the blood of Jesus For my part in this I see Nothing but the blood of Jesus For my cleansing this my plea Nothing but the blood of Jesus Oh, precious is the flow That makes me white as snow No other 
other bounds I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, this is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. God bless you today.